The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. come this evening to 1 Corinthians 7 at verse 17. Verse 17, not verse 7, but verse 17. Reading verses 17 to 24, Pastor Walker looked at the first half of chapter 7. I said to pastors Walker and York that when we divided the book up, we didn't really know who was going to preach what text. And when we divided 1 Corinthians 7 up to three parts, I noticed that I got the easy, fun part in the middle, and they both got all the hard parts. So Pastor Walker did a tremendous job last Sunday evening with giving us the highlights and the main points of a very um, complex issue that Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians 7 on marriage. We saw at the end of the sermon last week ties in with the verses that we look at this week. So we're reading chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, verses 17 to 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ." You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let us pray. Father, we pray and ask and seek you that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word. Thank you for teaching us by your spirit from your word. We want to submit our lives to your word. We want to be built up and encouraged from its promises, from the truth of who you are and who we are in light of that. We ask that you would be with us in this time as we look into your holy word in Jesus' name. Amen. Nine miles off the wild coast of southwestern Ireland, that's off the coast of County Kerry, which is pretty wild if you've been there. Nine miles off that southwestern coast in the Atlantic is this tiny island named Skellig Michael, an island buffeted by the winds and the waves of the North Atlantic Ocean. If you were to take a helicopter sightseeing trip over this island, you would see a triangular-shaped island which looks like a jumble of rocks, mostly, and dirt there. 
But if you would look closely, you would see a few ancient pathways ascending through the jumble of rocks. And then you would see among the rocks what you could describe as a few beehive-looking huts built of rocks, in the rocks. These are the remains of a monastic colony from hundreds of years ago when monks came to Skellig Michael during Ireland's monastic period, we would say. They came there to live lives of separation from the world and communion with God. The idea behind this colony of monks, this monastery, and other monastic movements of the time and before that was that in order to really walk with God, in order to really pursue a life of holiness, what was called for is that you withdraw from the world, from the secular world at least, as much as possible. And really, when you think of it, You can't get more isolated than nine miles off the Ireland coast, especially in that day and age, just trying to think what it was like to get out there on a little boat or a ship of some kind. So you were supposed to withdraw as a monk from whatever job you might have had, from your family, from your community, from your neighborhood, from all of these kinds of things, all these to be renounced in order to truly grow closer to God. Well, you probably know that the Protestant Reformation turned away from monasticism as a spiritual principle, as a scriptural thing. Instead, seeing Scripture as teaching Christians to remain in normal life and society. And this text in 1 Corinthians 7 is one of the clear statements of this view, that Christians aren't to try to go up on a mountaintop somewhere and get away from the world, as much as you may want to do that sometime. Here we find that Christians should be concerned with living for God where they are in life. Yes, there's a place for right ambition, an ambition that is submitted to God and given over to Him. No, it's not wrong to work to improve your lot in life, but fundamentally, the Christian's calling to glorify God can be lived out really in any circumstance, really in a wide range of circumstances. And God's people have done that throughout hundreds and hundreds of years of the New Testament age. And our focus is not to be primarily on changing our circumstances, but rather our focus is to be on trusting and obeying God out of a heart transformed by the new life that we've received in Jesus Christ. The major concern of Christianity is not withdrawing from society. It's not even to be the social revolution of society, but rather the primary aim is the spiritual regeneration of people through the gospel so that they begin to live lives to the glory of God wherever they might live. This principle is not to say that Christianity will not have a profound impact on society. You, know, you need only to look at history to see that this is not the case. All the major social changes for good over the past 2,000 years have largely resulted from the influence of Christianity on various countries and societies. But the way this influence has occurred has been more indirectly 
rather than direct influence pressure. Christianity acts like a leaven in any society, as yeast, as God transforms individual lives by the power of the gospel, and the cumulative effect of that transformation begins to be seen in society. Of course, the opposite takes place as well as Christian influence wanes at times. Christianity impacts us in our daily lives. A husband will become a better husband because of Christ. A wife will become a better wife. A friend, a better friend. An employee, a better employee. An employer, a better employer. A citizen will become a better citizen. And so Christianity will act as a leaven in society. And let me just add here that in speaking about Christianity's impact I'm not saying that Christians are to have nothing to do with what we might call social action. Jesus tells us to feed the hungry, to house the homeless, to clothe the naked, to visit the sick and imprisoned. Galatians 6.10, Paul commands us, let us do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Certainly there's a place for influencing society. There's a place, an appropriate place for political action. Look at William Wilberforce and his wonderful influence in England in abolishing slavery. But the essence of Christianity is not social action. That will be a byproduct, but the essence of Christianity is spiritual transformation of people's lives. And what's important is not outward circumstances, but rather our relationship to God and an attitude of living in obedience to Him. We see this principle of remaining where you are three times in our text, in verses 17, 20, 24. Notice how Paul repeats it three times. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Then further down, verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And Paul illustrates this with both the great religious division of his day, and that is Gentile and Jew, and the great social division of his day, slave and free. We want to look at this text under two main points. The first is this. Christians are called to be content in their circumstances. Christians are called to be content in the circumstances God has given them. Verses 17 to 19. Notice it says in verse 17 that Christians are called to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. The general principle is that becoming a Christian does not mean that you throw off your circumstances and your social status in life. The norm, Paul is saying, the general principle. Now, there might be exceptions to this. Certainly, Paul says in the Ephesians, let him who stole steal no more, but let him labor doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. If you were a thief, then no, this does not apply. You need to change your life calling. But generally speaking, the general principle of this verse is that it is not required that Christians in their conversion totally turn over their whole life. This was a problem in the early church. People would come to Christ and think, well, it's such a radical 
amazing change in my life that God has brought, I must need to completely change everything about my life, quit my job, and do something completely different. He's saying, no, the norm is to stay where you are to maintain the status in which God has called you. And the word called there means, in other words, God's effectual calling, His calling that brought you new life, made you alive in Christ. Notice that verse 17 looks back on verses 15 and 16. Only, or we could say but, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. Stay in your life, so to speak. We saw in verses 15 and 16 last week a rare exception to this rule. There he says in verse 15 that if there's a marriage and the unbeliever married to a believer in that marriage, if the unbeliever decides to leave that marriage, then Paul is saying, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In other words, if the unbelieving partner departs, let him depart, the apostle says. And certainly that's a case in which Christianity affects your status in this sense, your marriage. But what he goes on to say is, well, this is a rare exception to the norm, to the general principle. Let each person typically remain in the circumstances, in the calling, in his vocation, in his social status that he has. Here we see that we are called to be content whatever our circumstances might be, because God in His sovereignty apportions to every single person His or her place in life. This is a deeply mysterious thing. Again, I'm not saying that this leads to passivity or not trying to improve your lot in life in some way. Paul's been talking about marriage and the issue of whether you should stay single or get married or if a married person uh, should get divorced. But here, Paul broadens the whole scope of what he's been saying. He's now talking not just about marital status, but about your job, your background, everything you do and are, everything that has to do with your present state. And the apostle says, wherever you are, God has put you there. God is sovereign over your life. If there's been evil things that have occurred to you, you can trust that God is sovereign even over those things. If there are ways that you have made terrible mistakes in your life or lack of wisdom and decisions you've made, certainly there are consequences to those things. But the Christians can say, God has led me all the way. My God, my Father is sovereign over my life. I can trust Him. We hear a lot about self-made individuals in our society But in a sense, this verse is saying, well, there's really no such thing because everyone has his or her gifting of God. There's a certain political figure that recently started his presidential campaign. I won't mention any names. Probably you might take a wild guess who I mean. And he's talking about he's made billions of dollars. And that may be true and that may be great. But all of us should be willing to say, whatever I am, I know that anything good, any blessing, it's all of God. My God is sovereign over my life. 
something that we can't fully understand or even begin to understand, the, the amazing mystery of the sovereignty of God. But this is true for every person. This is true for every Christian, even before that Christian came to know Christ. But whatever effect conversion has in terms of the spiritual realm, in terms of the new life, Paul is saying, generally speaking, do not think that conversion and coming to Christ means that you have to change everything about your situation in life. It doesn't mean that. We're not to take this as an absolute law. If you come to Christ and you're 13 years old and you're single, that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to get married. You'll be glad to know that, you that are 13. It also doesn't prohibit a valid concern to better your circumstances or your job. The issue here is being content. Don't use Christianity as a false excuse to discontentment, to disrupt society, to change things that don't necessarily need to be changed. Conversion doesn't require that. God has put you where you are, and largely Christians should continue where they are. That's God's normal order of things. And notice at the end of verse 17, Paul says, this is his general rule. He says, this is my rule in all the churches. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you have to change your circumstances. Your major concern should be to live for God wherever you are. And now Paul illustrates this general point with this illustration. He says, let's take circumcision. Verse 18, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. And then he says this interesting statement in verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, it's helpful to know here that many Jews of Paul's time and in the Greek world actually did this. There was a surgical procedure to go through to remove the mark of circumcision. Why did they do this? Basically because of Greek influence in their lives, in the society of their time. These were Jews who wanted to fit in with Greek society, which, by the way, despised Jews and despised the mark of Jewishness, circumcision. So what does Paul say? If you're circumcised and God saves you, don't get uncircumcised. That will ruin the mission field in which God has sovereignly placed you. Can you imagine what all that person's Jewish friends and family would think if your conversion to Christianity caused you to become uncircumcised? They'd think it was blasphemy. It would just alienate the very people God may intend to save by your testimony to them. And the same goes for the uncircumcised, the second half of verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? In other words, was he a Gentile? Let him not seek circumcision. Now, why would Christian Gentiles want to become circumcised, we might ask? No doubt because some of the Jews in the church were pushing circumcision as a way to fuller blessing. We read that in the book of Galatians, for example. But for a Gentile to become circumcised was, again, a sure way to alienate all that person's family and friends. 
They'd miss the real point of Christianity, which is salvation through Jesus Christ, because they'd think that the issue was getting circumcised. No, you can be a Christian whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. And notice, Paul says, circumcision doesn't matter, but keeping the commandments of God. It's interesting, three times in the New Testament, Paul essentially says, neither uncircumcision nor circumcision makes any difference. And here he says, the key is, what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Galatians 5, 6 says it this way, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then in Galatians 6, 15, instead, a new creation. All three different verses describing in different words the same thing. And that is the tremendous difference new birth makes in giving us a new heart so now that we want to keep the commandments of God, so that we are a new creation, so that we have faith working through love in our lives. All three ways of saying pretty much the same thing with different emphases. In other words, the difference that conversion will make will not be in outward circumstances like whether or not you're circumcised. No, the difference that comes about as a result of true saving faith is that a person now begins to keep the very will of God from the heart through the power of the Spirit because Jesus Christ has given us new life. The issue is a matter of our heart, of true obedience from within, and not of the external circumstances of our lives. And so we see that Christians are called to be content in the circumstances of our lives. Ask yourself this, am I seeking to be content right where the Lord has me now? We might ask ourselves, do I really believe that every circumstance in my life is governed by the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe we might say, I believe that with my head, but I'm trying to believe that with my heart. There's something really maybe hard in my life right now. Or think of all the types of things about our lives that we might want to change. If you honestly sat down with a pen and wrote, what would you change about your life right now? I'm sure there were things that you would write down, maybe about your health or where you live or your appearance or your talents and your giftedness or your standard of living, your income, your family, your parents maybe, maybe your job or career, and the, the list goes on and on, the things that you might change. And Paul is certainly not saying that it's wrong to try to change the things that we might be able to change, that that are valid things that we can change in our lives. But he is fundamentally saying all these things must be submitted to Jesus Christ with that prayer that says, not my will, but thine be done. You can just write over the top of that list you might make, O Lord, thy will be done. Give me grace to submit to you every circumstance of my life. Help me more and more to be content with what you give me. All these things must be submitted to Christ if we are to be content, if we are to focus on the most important thing, and that is to truly walk with God every day. Secondly, the principle we see from our text, and we'll look at the second illustration Paul gives to understand this more. And this point is, Our contentment comes 
from belonging to Christ and walking with Christ. Our contentment comes from belonging to Christ and walking with Christ. In verse 20, we see Paul repeat the commandment. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And now he uses the illustration of whether you are slave or free. Verse 21, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Interesting, Paul uses slavery as an example here. And the whole issue of what the Bible says about slavery is a complex subject. We're not addressing that whole issue in our time tonight. Certainly, the Bible doesn't approve of slavery as an institution. But Paul is not saying slavery doesn't matter. He's simply saying that socially, you can be anything and still be a Christian. You can even be a bondservant or a slave. It's interesting how the ESV translates the word doulos, the word could also be translated slave, and it's got a note here, and if you look at the preface of the ESV, it says, because of the complexity of slavery in the ancient world, they choose to translate the word doulos, slave, as either slave in some places like Romans 6, and elsewhere they translate it servant, and here and elsewhere, they, like here, they translate it bond servant. And the reason they do that is because it's a complex thing. A bond servant was not exactly what we think of as slave in terms of 18th and 19th century chattel slavery in the United States. A bond servant was bound to serve for a specific time, usually a lengthy time, and he could be in that servitude because of many different reasons. It could be because of a war. It could be because he was born that way. It could be because he put himself in that position. He could have put himself in that position because of financial indebtedness. But it was a limited time. And a bond servant in ancient society in, in Paul's time might own property He might even achieve social advancement of various kinds, and he he very well might be released from being a bond servant eventually. He may even purchase his own freedom eventually, and Paul alludes to that. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. My intention is to not to go into a, a long dissertation here at all about the Bible and slavery. We, we know that the Bible is fundamentally opposed to it, but it was addressing people who lived in the society of that time which, in which slavery was very much a part of everyday ordinary life. And what are Paul's specific directives to Christian slaves? For example, in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, does he say, it's a sin for you to remain a slave and so you've got to revolt? No, he doesn't say that. He says, Obey your masters in singleness of heart as unto Christ. Interesting. And here it comes out. What was most important for these bond servants or slaves? Was their outward circumstance the most important thing? And the answer is no. 
What was crucial was the way they lived in whatever circumstance they may have found themselves when they came to know Christ. Of course, if there came opportunity to gain their freedom, well, that's fine, Paul says. Yes, if you can gain it, do so. But that's not the most important thing. Why? Verse 22, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. In other words, even if you're a slave, if you've been set free by Jesus Christ, you are the Lord's freedman. What a tremendous truth. Likewise, he who was free when called, in other words, if you weren't a slave or a bondservant, he is a bondservant of Christ. Interesting way Paul turns that around. He's speaking of the incredible freedom of belonging to Jesus Christ, even if you're a slave. Do you see why it's so important that we can be content when we remember that we belong to God through Jesus Christ? We are the Lord's freedmen. If you can say that of being a slave, do you see how you and I, we can all affirm this, whatever our circumstances might be in our lives? You can say, I am the Lord, the Lord's freedman in Christ. I may labor under the circumstances of my life that I don't like at all, that I wish would change, that I have no power over, it seems. I would like it to be this way. I see people in church, and their lives aren't like this. They have this. They have that. Their lives, their circumstances aren't like mine. But the truth of Scripture is we belong to Jesus Christ. We are the Lord's freedmen. The Christian is someone who's no longer a slave of sin, but rather a slave of Christ. Eternal uh, or external bondage or external freedom, in other words, whether you're a slave or not, is really, in a sense, nothing compared to the internal bondage of sin and the freedom that Jesus Christ brings to those who trust in Him. Let me just stop at this point and mention this. And ask each one of you, have you come to enter into the freedom from sin the Christian experiences in Jesus Christ? Maybe you've considered the gospel for years. Maybe you've heard it preached. Maybe you've gone to church all your life. But do you realize what Scripture says about the penalty and the, the great oppression of sin in each of our lives apart from Christ Do we see, do you understand that deep down I am a slave of sin and my motives and my ambitions and my whole direction in life, even though it may be pretty average and ordinary as Americans go, that really it is through and through selfish. It's oriented toward me. Jesus comes and invites us to believe in Him, to trust in Him, to look to His cross and experience true freedom from sin. I'm not just speaking to people who we would think of as really bad. I hope that you know that. I'm speaking to every person on this earth and the nature of our sin. God calls you to turn from sin and to place your trust wholly in Jesus Christ and to no longer be a slave of sin but become free in Jesus Christ. And so we are not to be concerned so much about our circumstances but rather as to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And so Paul exhorts them and exhorts us in verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. What does it mean to be a servant of men? It means to do what everyone else thinks you should do. 
Doesn't it mean that you live in a way as out of concern for appearance? The Bible calls it the fear of man that brings a snare. Even if you're a slave, the apostle is saying, don't consider yourself a slave of man. You're really serving God. And we're back to Colossians where Paul says, serve wholeheartedly as serving the Lord and not man. Don't be a bondservant of man. Christians belong to God and live before God, and that changes all of life. We're able to be content, in other words, because we know we belong to Christ. And then the other element of why we're able to be content is in verse 24, our final verse. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. He said the principle three times, but the final time he adds this little phrase at the end, with God. So whatever circumstances you're in, Paul says, there remain, but this time he makes it a point to say, there remain with God. What a beautiful way to end the discussion of this. Our contentment comes from belonging to God and walking with God because the Christian knows God is with us. True contentment requires that we call to mind the amazing truth of God with us. Emmanuel, God is with us in Jesus Christ. God dwelling with his people and by so doing, making sacred all the mundane circumstances of life. No matter how ordinary your life is, no matter how lowly your life is, I hope you young folks don't look at the celebrities very much on the internet or whatever, and I hope you don't wish that you were like them. I hope you don't wish and think, oh, if I only was fill in the blank, some great celebrity, then my life would be great. No, it's not a bad thing to have an ordinary life. And the kind of trials and temptations of that celebrity lifestyle, I wouldn't wish on anybody. What Paul is saying here is that God's divine calling on every Christian's life, His calling of us in Christ, and His sovereign ordering of our lives imparts dignity and significance to the very humblest vocation. Notice how throughout this part, Paul has used calling sometimes in terms of what we're doing, our vocation, and other times he talks about it in terms of our coming to Christ. God's called us. Someone has says it, said it this way, this truth raises the humblest duties to the supreme dignity of acts of worship. In other words, this truth that we belong to Christ, that God is with us, how that impacts how we look at the circumstances of our life, it's saying this truth of God with us raises up the humblest duties to be supremely dignified as acts of worship. It's like Martin Luther said about the servant maid sweeping the floor is doing something just as spiritual as the priest. Now, it doesn't say that it becomes an act of worship automatically. You might work with somebody when my, in my United Parcel Service days, 
And we loaded the, uh, the little package cars that go out every day, and I had three of those to load. There was a certain individual that worked further down the box line, as we called it, from me and from my trucks. Everybody stayed out of this person's way because no matter what, he was upset about something all the time. When he came down the box line, you just kind of got out of the way because you didn't want to get in his way. Certainly, his mundane, ordinary activity was not an act of worship by a long shot. But what Paul is saying here and elsewhere is God's divine calling on our life in Christ imparts the sacred dignity to the most ordinary things of life. And you and I are called to make daily life an act of worship, to make the ordinary mundane matters of life sacred in that sense because we live them in fellowship with Jesus Christ, looking to Him finding joy in Him, serving as unto Him, not fearing man, but fearing God in that reverential awe and trust and love and devotion. So Paul says, there, in that condition, there, let Him remain with God. To me, that equals having our eye fixed on God and living actively in the presence of God in our ordinary lives. That moral act of faith we're talking about that sanctifies and it makes noble even the mundane tasks of our lives. Remain in your circumstances, in other words, but do so in a manner that you are living before God and walking with God in those circumstances of your lives. Well, how is God calling you to walk with Him this week? This is a very practical text, isn't it? Maybe in suffering of some kind, maybe with some circumstances that you'd love to change, maybe in some special trial or temptation of faith that is coming down your pathway. The good news of the gospel is that you don't need to retreat to Scalig Michael or a similar island, not that you'd find one very easily around here. You don't have to retreat on a mountaintop to dwell with God. Thanks be to God. No, God dwells in you if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ by the power of His Spirit dwelling in you. Believe that your circumstances are ordered by God. Trust that by grace through faith you belong to Him in Jesus Christ. You are the Lord's freedmen. And walk with Him in the knowledge and the assurance of His presence with you. To him be the glory. Amen. Father, we thank you for how you, by your very presence, transform our lives. Whether it's a bright, sun-shining day, whether it's a bleak winter day or evening or night, whether it's a time of great sorrow, whether it's a time of great happiness in the things of this life, we thank you that it's your presence that makes the difference and that, in a sense, our outward circumstances aren't that important. We know that you order our lives. We know we can trust you even with those things. But we know that you want our hearts. We know that neither uncircumcision nor circumcision really counts for anything but keeping the commandments of God, but a new creation, but faith working through love. Please build that renewed mindset into each of our lives as we trust in you. Through Jesus Christ, amen.